When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Dr Pooja Lakshman is a psychiatrist and assistant professor at George Washington University, specialising in women's mental health. She's also deeply disillusioned with wellness culture and has set out to build self-care programmes that are evidence-based and actually work. That's the subject of her book, Real Self-Care, and of this conversation with Hannah McInnes. Enjoy. I'm going to actually just start off by asking, I quite often ask you to tell, tell us what this book is about, but I'm going to ask you first to tell us what it is not about, because that is almost where you begin and what's so important for people to understand. Yeah, that's a great starting point. So maybe I'll also just even back it up a little bit further and kind of talk a little bit about what led me to writing this book. I um, am 39 years old. Uh, I'm in Austin, Texas right now, and I am a psychiatrist. I specialize in women's mental health and I also write and I founded my company, Gemma. But about a decade ago in my late 20s, I went down the rabbit hole of really extreme wellness. Um, And this was all in the context of... um, being quite burnt out myself. I had gone straight through from undergrad to medical school to residency, sort of followed all the rules, especially for a South Asian woman in America whose parents are immigrants. You know, it's kind of like, oh, well, you're just going to be a doctor because that's what you do. You become a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer, right? Um, And so I sort of followed all the rules. I'd gotten married and I found myself really disillusioned, even though I had sort of checked off all of the boxes. And then also I was really frustrated at modern medicine and felt powerless in terms of how to actually support and help my patients. Yes, I could prescribe medication. Yes, I could do psychotherapy, but I could do nothing for the real social problems, you know, the lack of insurance here in the United States or the high cost of living or the housing crisis, all these things. So I was really angry and also deeply broken. Um, And so I ended up leaving my marriage, dropping out of uh, a prestigious residency program, moving into a commune that studied orgasmic meditation. I spent two years very deeply immersed in this sort of, I like to say, kind of like the woo-woo wellness world. And and I also, during that time, I worked at a neuroscience lab that studied female orgasm. But at the end of that two years, I left the group really heartbroken, actually, because what I realized was that the wellness world has just as many contradictions and hypocrisies as kind of traditional medicine or mainstream medicine. And also I realized that I had just sort of been running away from my problems. I thought that if I followed this certain wellness practice, if I followed this guru, that everything would be better. I thought that I could find the answers outside of myself. And what ultimately I learned is that real self-care, real wellness can only come from within. And I know that sounds really cliche, but it's actually the truth. And I think sometimes it's a little tough when those cliches are true, but I guess getting back to your original question, Hannah, when we say what, what isn't self-care or, or, you know, I, in the book, I talk about faux self-care. And so this is our commodified, consumer-oriented, product-driven solutions for women's problems. So it's like the bubble bath. It is the meditation app. 
it is the juice cleanse. And I think we all know that you can't meditate yourself out of a 40 hour work week without affordable childcare. Like that just, that doesn't work. And so I find, I found it to be insulting actually, that these are the solutions that women are given, you know, we'll just take a nice bath and have a glass of wine. They're there. Everything's fine. And it's sort of like, well, no, there's so much, the world is on fire. There's just so many different things that are broken in our, in our surroundings, in our social structure, in our politics. And so how can we just continue to be served these band-aid solutions? You know, you mentioned America quite a lot there and you also mentioned women I just they are two separate questions firstly is this a book just for women aimed at women and is it more for American women is it worse in America do you think or is this across western culture so I'll answer the woman question first and I'm really glad that you asked that because I include a specific note up front in the book about the words that I use Um, And so when I'm saying woman, I am using, I'm borrowing a definition of woman from Silvia Federici, who is, I'm sure you probably are familiar with her work. She's the iconic Italian feminist scholar and thinker. and, And she talks about women as a political category. So I am referring to women as in the most intersectional sense. So anybody in a culture that is disadvantaged, right? And there's different ways to be disadvantaged. You can be, um, identify as a man and, um, you know, be neurodivergent or handicapped, right? In some way and be disadvantaged. So, you know, my clinical practice, um, by training, I'm a perinatal psychiatrist. So I, most of my patients are moms and are in the pregnancy postpartum period. So, you know, my expertise is in people who identify as women, but I do think that these, these social problems and also the solutions, the personal solutions that I'm proposing are broadly applicable to a large group of folks, regardless of where you are on the gender spectrum. And I think actually that's also applies in terms of, you know, your question about the United States versus Britain versus Europe versus um, and inflation, even childcare, I understand is quite expensive in the UK. So I think a lot of these social ailments are pretty universal. There's just different kind of tweaks, I think, in terms of the specifics. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, perhaps some Scandinavian countries might, you know, might not, it might not apply there. um, As ever, they seem to get a lot right. Can I ask you about why you chose to to call it real self-care? Because obviously, I wonder if you had any trepidation about kind of putting self-care in your title, given the premise of the book is really to dismiss a, a notion of self-care that most of us carry in our minds. Yeah, I really wish that I had been able to think of like a pithy new word that we could use instead of self-care. And I unfortunately wasn't creative enough or I don't have like the marketing branding brain to to have that. But then I was like, but you know what? I think there's a power in sort of reclaiming it. So why do you call it, you know, sticking with the self-care that that we need to be very wary of? And we'll obviously then talk much more about what real self-care is. Why do you call it the tyranny of self-care? Yeah. So I'll give you a a really common example in my practice. It's, you know, a woman who comes in and she says, Dr. Lakshman, I'm not eating well. I'm not sleeping well. I know I'm burnt out. And I feel like it's my fault because I have this meditation app on my phone and I know I should be using it, but I just can't bring myself to. And so that's why I say the tyranny of faux self-care because all of these solutions just end up as another task in our to-do list. It's just another thing on the list that you're never able to get to. You feel guilty about, you end up feeling ashamed. A couple of years ago, I wrote a piece for the New York times that was called, this is betrayal, not burnout. Mm -hmm. And in that piece, I talked about how, when we make the problem individual, when we say that the individual is burnt out, this or yoga, green juice, juice, a lot of people get a lot from those things and and find them incredibly helpful. They make them feel good in lots of different ways. 
So you're not advocating to just kind of take those away from your life, but you called it a band-aid. So it's more about using those and understanding them and how you use them and why you go to them in a different way. Exactly. So I'm not recommending austerity. You know, I, I, I think we're all humans. We need those moments of escape. In the book, the way that I conceptualize it is that the the bubble baths, the the green juice, that's a method, right? That's one thing that you can do and use in the moment that provides temporary relief to a problem. Real self-care is a set of principles that can be applied broadly to your holistic decision-making and threaded throughout all of the different layers of decisions that you're making in your life. Another way to think about it is that the patient and, and even myself, like I struggle with this too, you know, I finally managed to take an afternoon off for myself and, you know, book a nice massage, you know, spend $200 probably in the UK. It's like, you know, 400 pounds or something, you know, crazy, right? It's like a luxury. And then you spend the whole time on the massage table worried about your to-do list. And then you feel like when you come back to your desk, you have to make up for all the productivity that you've lost. And so the reason that that happens is that you've employed a method. You've done the massage, but you've not worked through the internal principles that allows you to actually experience the massage. So in which case, basically faux self-care, as you call it, is sort of short-lived. And I found it really interesting um, what you were saying about you know, you just mentioned um, a massage, but you talk about wellness retreats. And the point is, well, you much rather hear it in in your words, but the reason they don't work is because of how short lived they are. Because when you go back into your real life, this kind of parallel universe that you might have been in, whether it's for two days at a spa or a week, you know, on a juice cleanse, makes you feel pretty bad about yourself when you just realize you cannot transpose that into your everyday life for whatever reason it might be. Exactly. And and when I was kind of conceptualizing the reason why we turned to that escape, I referenced back to rehab programs actually, right? If you're if you're someone who struggles with substance abuse, you check into a rehab program and those rehab programs are are very structured. You know, you don't have to make any decisions for yourself. Your day is all set out for you. And that's sort of similar to wellness retreats. And the problem though is that once you leave that retreat, you come back into your daily life. And in your regular life, you have to make tons of decisions, right? So it's like, it's really easy to feel good on a retreat. And and I'm not knocking it or poo-pooing it. You know, we do, if you have the access to those resources to be able to take time out, it's, it's not like it's something that you need to be ashamed about. It's more like understanding, oh, this doesn't actually do anything for me in my real life because the internal work of real self-care has to come in grappling with the hard choices that everybody has to make in terms of what are your priorities? What are your values? What actually makes sense for your life? Right. And and, and that is a, a way of understanding real self-care in terms of your values and what makes sense in your real life. And that's why you say, and I hope I pronounced this right, that I think one of the m- best ways to explain to people what real self-care how you can explain it as a concept is that it corresponds with this concept that you call or you you know is called um eudaimonic well-being yeah, yeah. perhaps you could explain that because it's a you know it really um makes us understand that concept yes so the well-being research has sort of two different lanes when it comes to the types of well-being the first is hedonic well-being and hedonic well-being is focused on pleasure and happiness the other that you just mentioned, Hannah, is called eudaimonic well-being. And eudaimonic well-being means that your actions, the way that you spend your time, is aligned with your values, your internal values. So eudaimonic well-being says that the people who are most fulfilled in their life are the ones who feel that their day-to-day is imbued with meaning and purpose. In, in, in terms of, I'm going to skip to this values thing because I think it's really important because it's often very hard. We do get told a lot or I think, you know, in a lot, a lot of literature about how to sort of set your 
goals, how to you know rearrange and, and to make plans and to work out what you want from your life, it's important to make sure your life is aligned with your values. I found it quite hard reading that for quite a long time because I found it quite difficult to work out what they are. And I think a lot of people find that, whereas you have such clear ways of I really worked them out when I was reading your book. So I wonder if you could explain that to people, how to work out what your values are so that you can go about living in accordance with them, which is what really real self-care is all about, as opposed to chasing goals. Yeah. Okay. I'll try to, I think there's a couple different concepts. So the first thing is understanding the difference between goals and values, because I think for a lot of us, especially if you're somebody who is, you know, kind of type A and like, and high achieving, it's easy to get the two confused. So a goal is a tangible outcome that you want to achieve. So for me, you know, a goal is I want to become a doctor. I want to get into medical school. I want to graduate medical school and get this degree. A value is an adjective. A value is a quality and an embodiment of how you show up when you're actually moving towards the goals. So you can be, so the values that you bring to the way that you're moving towards your goals stay constant. Even if you don't meet your goals, you can still live by your values. And there's a nice example that Russ Harris, who is a teacher of acceptance and commitment therapy, which is where this concept comes from. He talks about the difference between, let's say you're on a long car ride and you're with your kids and you know there's two ways that you can get to your destination. Either you can get to your destination and you can be like, singing show tunes and playing I spy and, you know, just kind of having a grand old time, or you could be sitting there gripping the wheel, cursing traffic, like just really angry and annoyed. And like, just, you know, both of those, like it's palpable, the difference, right. And that's about the values. That's like, how, how do you actually show up? So again, that's the values piece. And I think the next part of that is, you know, I think it, I like what you said, Hannah, because I've actually experienced the same thing with my patients and even for myself. I think when you point blank ask somebody, oh, what are your values? Everybody kind of wants to give like the stock answer, like, well, I really value compassion or I really value, you know, family, right? You know, it's like you want to say like the really pious, nice thing. So you have to kind of come and it's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But no, we're trying to get to like, the next things after that. So that's why in the exercises in real self-care, I come to it indirectly. So for example, one of the exercises is just kind of like this thought exercise. Like imagine you only have 200 pounds and you're going to throw a dinner party for your friends. What kind of dinner party would you throw? You know, some of us might say, oh, it's going to be a costume party and like everybody's going to play charades. Like other people might say like, oh, it's going to be a potluck and there's going to be a theme of the type of food people can bring. Someone else might say, oh, you know, we're going to all sit around in a circle and we're going to play like truth or dare. And so it it's like this very sort of low stakes experiment and you can envision, okay, what would my party look like? And then from there you can reflect on that and think about, okay, well, like what came out there? Did I really, maybe I'm somebody who like really likes to be silly. Silliness is a value. Maybe I'm somebody who really values authenticity. You know, maybe I love sitting with other people one-on-one and hearing their secrets, you know, like just letting yourself be with that experience and thinking about what would feel most fulfilling to you. That's what I was trying to kind of create in in the values chapter, because, you know, I do that with my patients in the therapy room. So it was sort of like, okay, how do you bring that to life on the page? This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. 
You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And there are so many other brilliant, helpful things. I mean, people will hopefully get the book and find there your self-care compass, which um, you might have time to kind of mention. But I think there, I'm going to move on to some other kind of really um, important things that um, people should understand and that you, again, explain very well that have come up again in other in other books. But I feel like you really get a grasp on explaining them. And another one of those is boundaries, really. So essentially what you're saying is that boundaries are essential, setting boundaries are essential to real self-care. And it feels like a big question, but you do ask it and answer it. What are boundaries in your, how you frame them and how you see them? Yeah. So I think about boundaries as the pause. So your boundary is in the pause of when somebody asks you to do something, you take a moment to step back. And then you decide, you can say yes, you can say no, or you can negotiate. But it's in that pause where you're giving yourself time to decide that's the boundary. And you might still say yes, right? You might say no, you might negotiate, right? But it's the actual space that you're taking, it, the energetic space, the sort of emotional space, that is the actual boundary. And I think, you know, one of the things I'd love to just kind of like highlight is I think when I use that word negotiation, I think a lot of times that sounds like very corporate or sort of like, oh, well, we negotiate in a business setting. But actually in our day-to-day family life, in our personal lives, I mean, that's constant interpersonal negotiation. We just rarely sort of use that word, but that's really what it is. And when I say negotiate, I mean, you know, just asking questions. Somebody comes to you with a request, hey, like, are you free on Monday night? you know, just asking like, oh, like, what were you thinking? Who else is going to be there? Is there any way we can change the time to be right? And just allowing yourself to ask for your needs and make requests. Yeah. It's interesting that you say sort of corporate, because actually, I think it's quite helpful to sort of see it a bit like that. You know, when you give your advice, again, really sort of straightforward, practical advice about the way to actually communicate, and you have examples, you know, again, I guess you do sometimes have to see it sort of business-like, the way that you you advocate clearly communicating these things rather that you know i think that's what um that perhaps women are quite bad at doing because they're trying so hard to please everybody yeah we don't have as much practice it's not socially sanctioned right we get penalized when we do it for sure and yeah i think with boundaries in particular there's really two processes that are happening simultaneously one is that maybe I would say operational instead of corporate. Like it's very sort of like, this is what you do. You know, you can use email, you can say text, but you can be clear, you know, be very clear and direct, ask for what you need, say what doesn't work. But then the part, and, and that's not necessarily super hard. The part that's hard is the other parallel process, which is about the feelings, right? Because women pretty much universally, when you set a boundary, you feel guilty, right? Um, and the other person that you're setting a boundary with, especially if you're not somebody who has ever set boundaries before that other person is going to have some feelings. They might be a little bit cranky with you. They might be snippy, you know, and you'll feel that from them. So your job, like the real self-care work then is you have to process those emotions and you need to find a separate space for yourself to, understand and accept that it's not your responsibility to take care of everybody else's feelings. 
Well, you say you have to put guilt in the background and I'm sure people will think, okay, well, how on earth do I do that? Because of course you just think, I can't say that. I'll just have to say, you know, oh, it's fine. I'll be there or it's fine. I'll do it. Or you know, there's a brilliant example, actually. I might have to just quote it because I, I it was in um, written here by a, a great, I think she's great, um, writer and journalist. Do you know Catelyn Moran? And she gave her life rules at the weekend. And she wrote, women, when sending work emails, remove the first and last sentences of the emails. Those are the ones where you're almost certainly, one, apologising for con- contacting the recipient, and two, negating the preceding contents of your email with, but no worries if you can't, sorry to trouble you. Um, and it's just so easy to revert to that. But, you, you know, you, your book is, as I said at the start, very empowering. You know, you, you tell us how to put that guilt in the background and, and feel confident in asserting yourself. Yeah. And my strategy for the guilt is to understand that the guilt actually isn't really yours. The guilt is coming from the outside. It's coming from all of these contradictory social and cultural norms and messaging. And as women, we internalize that. And then we wonder if we've said something wrong or if we're asking for too much or if we're doing the wrong thing. But if you think about it, the guilt is sort of always there. And the fact that it's always there means that it's not actually really providing any meaningful information in terms of your decision-making. I, in the book, I talk about how I conceptualize guilt as a faulty check engine light. So like the, you know, in your car, when you have like a, the light that just keeps going off and it won't shut off, even if you've gotten the car serviced and nothing's wrong, but it's still blinking. That's like guilt. It's like just always there sort of in the background And you can't spend all your time trying to avoid guilt because then you're going to just move so far away from your values. You're going to get lost. So instead, the goal isn't to turn the guilt off. The goal is just to put the volume down and say like, okay, fine, it's there, but it doesn't have to guide me. But is that then, because you say, you say this is coming from society, this is coming from societal expectations, the way it makes us feel. Is that then to accept that? To just that accept that is there, it's always going to be there, and we must kind of be aware of it and then just sort of change our reactions accordingly. Yeah, I mean, I think of it as just sort of like a fly that you swat away. <laughs> um, and so, and, and so, for example, the other thing you, you say again is to silence the, the killjoys. This is a way of kind of being able to assert your boundaries, set your boundaries and not worry, as so many of us do, about what other people think and not be guided in our lives so much about what other people think and try and be guided by what we know or what we want and our own kind of innate values and principles. Yes, the killjoys are usually kind of this group of people, maybe from your childhood or from your early days, or maybe like a group of coworkers or professionals that you really put on a pedestal. And there, so many of us are kind of beholden to their opinions. And, you know, in the book, I talk about the cost of living your life based on those other people's opinions. That's, that's what led me to end up in a situation where I felt so disconnected from myself. You know, I think one of the ways to, and and I just want to also just point out, like, all of this is really hard work. Like this isn't, none of this is easy, right? It's not like this is the type of thing that you read this book and you're like, all right, Pooja, I got it. Great. I'm good. You know, no, no. This is the type of thing where like all of this is a lifelong process. You know, I'm a psychiatrist. I take care of patients. I went through this whole personal journey. And there are some weeks where I'm terrible at real self-care, right? Like it's just, you're always kind of like coming back and like trying to recenter, but it's a lifelong learning process. One of the the ways that I also think about killjoys is this concept of the Rorschach test, which is like an old old timey cycle. It's like that inkblot test that psychoanalysts used to use where you hold up the inkblots and then the patient will say what they see. Like another person's reaction to your decisions and your choices says so much more about that person and their own insecurities and their own passions and their own wants for themselves. So I think like, again, this is why the boundaries piece is so important. You have to develop the capacity to be okay with making choices that might be a little bit different than um, 
what other people are used to. Mm -hmm. And that's why real self-care though, like, you know, for those who end up reading the book, so much of these tips and exercises are really about navigating relationships, right? And navigating how you understand what you want and balancing the needs of other people that you care about. So it really is about interconnection and how you live with others and how you show up in your relationships. So I'm not saying like, oh, just sort of like seclude yourself in a cabin in the woods and like cut everybody off like that. No, that's not the answer. The answer is that to find the people who actually do really support you and will be there for you. The killjoys are not those people. But it's also about self-compassion. And perhaps that's the most important and hardest one for people to to kind of get to grips to. And people might think that self-compassion is hot baths and wine and candles. What is it? In, in yeah. real self-care terms. Yeah, in real self-care terms, I think about compassion as what's called psychological flexibility. So you are developing a new relationship with your mind. So for example, if the thought comes, especially for women, there's so much research that shows women are really hard on themselves, right? We always have this sort of constant critical narrative running. So you might have the thought like, you know, oh gosh, Pooja, like, why did you wear that lipstick? Like, is purple really the right color? (laughs) And instead of letting yourself go down that path, you say, oh, that's curious, right? Oh, where did you, where did you hear that before? You know, oh, that's interesting that the thought that takes up so much attention in your mind is about how you look you know, what does that mean? And where did that come from? So when we say psychological flexibility, what that means essentially is like, you're having a conversation in your mind with the thoughts that are coming and your inner critic, the the part of your mind that's sort of churning these thoughts doesn't have to be the only voice that's there. There's a dialogue where you're understanding that you can challenge these negative thoughts. Yeah. Okay. So, so your inner critic is also something we should name. Yes. So this is um, an exercise and a practice that comes again from acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, and, and the idea here is to sort of, again, like just get kind of like loose with yourself, like make it a little bit less high stakes. Um, so you can name that inner voice. So my inner critic's name is Angelica. She is the bossy older sister from Rugrats that maybe, and I'm really aging myself here. Um, I had a patient whose inner critic was Miranda Priestley, that terrifying, um, Anna Wintour character. And, and the, the reason that this works is because it, when you have a character in your mind, it reminds you that, oh, wait, this isn't me. You know, this is something else. This is another voice. And I don't have to listen. I don't have to accept this type of cruel self-talk as the truth about myself. Like the real truth is you're not going to get rid of it. You're not going to be able to turn it off. The goal isn't to turn it off. The goal is to understand that it might be there in times of stress, it'll flare up but that you don't have to be guided by it and you can let it go. Like it can come and you can just move on. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. So these are the things essentially that are barriers to sort of self-compassion and they're barriers to giving yourself real self-care, really. Kind of your inner critic piping up and saying, don't do this, don't rest, for example, is one of them. I'd really love to explore before we get to audience questions because I just found, again, them so helpful, your suggestions for taming what you call martyr mode. And this is a huge barrier to self-compassion. So what is it and how do we, how do we, you know, how do women kind of stop themselves from feeling they have to bend over backwards to help everyone 
even if that is not really serving them or the people they think they're helping. Yeah, yeah. Um, and because the worst part of the martyr mode is that you're so angry, right? Yeah. You're seething because you're doing everything and nobody is helping you. And can't they see that you are just completely carrying the whole weight of the world on your shoulders? And yet everybody else is just sitting around playing their video games and having a grand old time. So it's it's the fix to that first is to recognize that you're there, right? Because the martyr mode is something that you know, sort of ebbs and flows. Um, so there will certainly be triggers in certain times of your life or seasons of your life. One time or the, the one place that I see it creep up pretty often with my patients is during the holidays, like during Christmas, um, because so much of the weight of the gift giving and the making of all the magic falls on women and moms. And then I suggest a strategy of coming from good enough. So meditating on what is good enough. And instead of focusing on, or instead of worrying about being selfish, and instead of going in the other direction and being selfless, actually, we just need to be good enough. Because when you're trying to be selfless, that's actually when the martyr mode comes. So again, like, I'm not suggesting we all just like move to a cabin in the woods and never talk to anybody. I'm saying like, there's a middle ground where like your needs also matter. I'm not saying that your needs are always the most important needs, but I'm saying that you can be part of the team, right? And you're allowed to take your preferences into account. And yes, of course, there will be situations where your needs are not the top needs, but if you find yourself living in a life where your needs are never being met and never anywhere on the table, that's that's when you're in martyr mode. Yeah. And actually, there's a lot of um, uh, studies that do suggest um, that if you take yourself out of martyr mode and actually are kind to yourself, treat yourself well. In fact, you, you really do impact society don't you, a great deal better. And children notice when their mothers are living um, for themselves more than sort of permanently trying to you know, martyr themselves for their children's needs. Apparently, young children sort of notice that in their mothers, see them living their own lives and, and living and giving themselves some compassion. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we could talk for a whole nother hour about postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety and the fact that getting treatment for these types of conditions actually improves outcomes for your kids. Um, so 100 um, percent. And the other thing that I would say is that, that really ties into the whole kind of revolutionary aspect of real yeah. self-care, that this is this whole process is about power. Right. In giving yourself permission to set boundaries, to be compassionate with yourself, to live by your values, you automatically show up differently in your relationships and you model for others to make different choices and people respond to you in a different way. And then that results in cascade effects in your family, right? Or in your workplace or in these larger systems. And so my kind of entire thesis is that you know, I think there's always this sort of paradox of like, well, the world is on fire. Everything's terrible. How am I as one person supposed to fix, you know, climate change, for example, <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, no, if you think of it that way, then all you are going to, you're just going to be hopeless, right? We can take these big social problems and we can think about how we show up in our own lives and make different choices. And even in, you know, in the book, I provide examples from my clinical practice. Like, so for example, the mom, you know, in the United States, it's embarrassing. We, we don't have federally mandated maternity leave or paternity leave. So it's, it's like a terrible situation. But um, so an example for my practice is a woman who, you know, started to set boundaries, work through this process, ultimately had hard conversations with her husband and her husband then asked him his employer for paternity leave when they had their third kid. Um, and his employer said yes. And that change went on to impact everybody else who worked at that company. But that would not have happened if my patient, if her first step wasn't setting boundaries. Yeah. 
So it can be a revolutionary act, even if one person takes it on. You know, it doesn't have to be that the whole of society needs to read the book, understand real self-care and take the kind of world by storm and change it all. You can, you know, it can bring a great deal of empowerment and power and change just through one person. Yes, because really, ultimately, that's, I think, what, you know, I'm a psychiatrist. I work one-on-one with my patients. And so I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't feel that that individual empowerment wasn't truly important. And as I've built my career and gotten more into advocacy work, whether it's through writing or social media or my company, Gemma, I've also seen that there's nobody who moves into leadership. And when I say leadership, I mean in the broadest sense. So leadership in your social group, in your family, right? Nobody comes there unless they've actually done this internal real self-care process first, whether or not they call it real self-care, but there has to be kind of an internal change first because you first have to recognize the system is terrible, right? And then you start to see, okay, I can take a step back. I can do things differently. And, And for me, my personal process was in you know, leaving full-time academic medicine and realizing that my values actually lied in having a more creative career and, and sort of, I guess you could call it freelance, having a private practice and writing and, you know, doing all a little bit of a lot of different things suited my values and my personality. And, and yes, there was privilege involved in that and resources to be able to take a pay cut, to start my practice and do all this stuff. But um, I had to understand that it was okay for me to make a decision that was in line with what worked for me. And that then enabled me to write this book, which will hopefully end up catalyzing other folks to go on their own unique path. I think it most definitely will. Um, And I'm sorry not to be able to ask you about, you know, many other things, but the beauty is, is that people can read the book and so I won't dominate any more time with all my questions. And luckily, in fact, one of the things that we didn't sort of talk about at the beginning was, I suppose, the history of self-care and why it now is this sort of thing. You call it the tyranny of self-care. And I think that's quite a modern malaise, if we would call it that. Um, and Dom says, thanks for the talk. Very interesting. I'd like to know what your opinion on the damage created by social media. I think it's really important and the overwhelming feeling they create um, and how to reduce that feeling. Yeah, that's such a great question um, because I think we can't, you know, I feel like every couple months we see another study coming out uh, on how damaging social media is, especially for young people, especially for young women. You know, this is something that I have thought about quite a bit because there is a lot of good that has come from social media in that it's democratized information, it's democratized science. It's a space where women in particular, especially my patient population, moms of small kids who don't have time to be out and about in the world can connect with each other through these online communities. But then at the same time, there are these horrible places on the internet and so much that can be damaging. So I think like ultimately for me, my answer is that it's a both and. I think that there needs to be more intentionality in terms of what's happening on social media and what I'm doing at Gemma with my two partners who are also psychiatrists, um, we are developing sort of facilitated communities. So we have WhatsApp threads where there's moderators, um, ourselves included in these conversations. So it's not just like putting people in a Facebook group and saying like, talk about whatever you want and, you know, fend for yourselves. I guess the psychiatrist lens that I bring to it is that I think there needs to be sort of facilitation and again, like purpose and structure to the conversations that happen on social media. And when there are those clear guardrails, then it's more likely that something will be positive. But when it's just sort of like a Facebook group or, you know, just sort of something unstructured, I think you do have to be really careful. A really good question from Anna, because it's something that you have kind of specific examples of people feeling in the book is about boundaries. 
She said, you argued that setting boundaries has a positive effect on people around you. But what if people around you respond negatively to this and don't accept it or continue to overstep your boundaries? For example, your parent, who it's much harder to set boundaries with than your friends, I think. I would have two lines of response for that. So one is that culture is hugely important when we're talking about boundaries. So for example, in South Asian culture, decision-making tends to be much more communal. And so boundaries can be viewed as a threat, right? Um, When you set a boundary, people can feel threatened and worried about abandonment. Um, So you have to kind of keep the cultural context in mind too, if you're coming from a family that historically does not value or, or have a vocabulary for boundaries as much. To the other part of the question, yes, there are always going to be people who react poorly to your boundaries. And it is absolutely the most difficult to set boundaries with your own family of origin because you have all that baggage from years and years of interacting in these certain dynamics. And now all of a sudden you're trying to change it. So your work is understanding that you can't change anybody else, right? You can only decide what is acceptable for you. And that typically means having to make hard decisions over time about how close you are with certain family members. And, you know, to be clear, like this is something that can evolve over time. But I I think that oftentimes if they're, if you're coming from a family where boundaries are, you know, received very poorly. And that's a pattern. Then, you know, one of the things I work through in therapy with my patients is like really kind of understanding over the course of usually years, you know, okay, well then what is, what is a safe distance? You know, what does that distance look like? What is realistic? What feels possible? And of course there's always pros and cons to this. I'm not saying any of these are easy solutions. You might decide that, it's worth the cost because you want your kids to have a a close relationship with their grandparents, or you might decide um, the cost is too much and I will take the hit and, and, you know, bear that guilt, right? Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's not an easy answer to these questions. And it's something that kind of, you have to sort through over time. Another really good question. I'm so important that Alex, that you asked this, because I suppose we didn't talk at the beginning about when you need to seek a different type of help or when real self-care is and isn't appropriate. And so Alex says, you talk about burnout. Please, can you expand more on your definition? A lot of people talk about burnout as a transitory thing that they can get over in a weekend, which I find frustrating as I burnt out and was off work for a long period and recovery took a long time. Still not properly recovered in honesty. Is this the sort of burnout your book addresses or the more short-term sort? Yeah, so I think about burnout on a spectrum of severity and the person who can take a weekend off and feel better in my in my view is not, I wouldn't call that burnout either. Burnout means that you need a much longer time away. And I think this book is written for more of a, maybe an existential burnout (laughs) where you find yourself really deeply questioning a lot of assumptions that you had in your life. And it's not a substitute for psychotherapy or seeking professional help. In the book, I actually provide, every chapter has a specific little section about how to know when to seek professional help and how to know if some of the things that you might be experiencing are a flag for having the next level of support, whether that's through a psychotherapist, whether that's through medication. And so, you know, I can't say, Alex, to your question, I don't know exactly your specific situation, but I think that maybe I would answer that by saying, in my experience with my patients and from myself, there's usually never just one thing that fixes burnout. It's never usually just one choice or one change. It's usually hundreds of small changes and hundreds of different steps that you take to get yourself back on the path to being closer to yourself. So I would say this book is one tool, right? But there 
and and hopefully, you know, kind of reading through it and metabolizing it would help will help you see what the other tools are as well. I mean, and it's really helpful, as you say, in each chapter, there's a section that just says, if you feel this way, then you need to seek a medical help rather than assume that you can sort of do it like this. And then by all means, you come back to this, but it's not on its own if you are sort of experiencing a clinical um, you know, mental difficulties. Um, somebody says, please, can you talk about the first steps to separate yourself from your inner critic? For me, it feels just me, the inner voice that sometimes motivates, but has now become too loud. So I, I suppose I'm just trying to work out. I, um, I don't know if you can add to that question, the anonymous attendee who's written it, but do you mean perhaps this inner voice that kind of motivates you by telling you to do too much and is actually just too loud and too and too bossy and you wish it would let you rest is is that the is that the question because it's really interesting yeah i wonder i actually have a little section in my book um or there, after each chapter there's a section that's like it sounds great but and where yeah. i go through like kind, kind of common questions and this reminds me maybe a little bit of like well what's the difference between a critic your critic and your drive yeah. Right. We all have an inner drive where, you know, helps us get to work on time in the morning. And, you know, and so I'm not saying that that isn't important. It's when the voice becomes cruel, when it's so demanding, when it makes you feel bad about yourself, that's when it's counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, again, there's there there's a distinction there. So I, it's a little hard for me to know based on this person's question if if maybe they're talking about their drive and maybe sometimes it veers into a kind of a critical place and then other times it feels more productive. I would say, you know, just my advice there would be to pay a little bit more attention to like the tone of that voice and maybe even journal and keep note of what some of the things that that voice says and like get curious about the way it shows up. Uh, unfortunately, we've we've managed to come to the end of our hour. And Alex says, thank you for getting to, to his question. You know, I have the support of a therapist and have for decades. Boundaries is a big part of it. I've always found the phrase self-care really helpful shorthand in therapy, but annoying that over the last five years or so, it's moved out of therapy and into the mainstream. So now it just means yoga. Um, <laughs> and why don't you, you, it's a really interesting place to, to sort of end, I suppose, because we're talking again about this journey of the term self-care, which you talk about, and we we haven't got to quite so much because it hasn't always been like this. No, it hasn't always been like this. And originally the term came about in the medical community, but then in the 1960s and 70s, um, black queer activists in the United States, like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks, really kind of crystallized this term as a political movement, self-care as self-preservation, especially if you're somebody who's coming from a marginalized group. And so my take on it now as a psychiatrist in 2023 is trying to bridge this lexicon of a social and structural critique but also pointing to solutions that are deeply personal and have the potential to uh, enact change. Well, thank you so much. Um, as always, as I said at the beginning, brilliant questions. Alex, thanks for your PS. <laughs> I won't read it out loud. Very kind. Um, but mainly, really, Pooja, thank you so much for joining us. And um, I hope that you'll be in the UK in not too long and that we can have a wonderful big how-to real self-care event with everyone in the room and be able to kind of meet you afterwards but thank you so much absolutely it was such a pleasure thank you for having me hannah and thank you to the how-to academy and um and yes everybody uh order the book and and hopefully i'll be able to come to uk at some point so thank you (laughs) this episode starred Pooja lakshman and was presented by hannah mckinnis it was produced by nicole wong and i make this show with esme bright our editor is john doughty Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.